This is If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles' breakup. Welcome to Episode 5. It's the spring of 1969, and the Beatles are about to re-enter the studio to record their swan song. But first, we need to unpack one vitally important issue as we move the story forward. And that issue is the battle for northern songs. All right, let's do this thing. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. Okay, 15 second recap of the series thus far. Episode 1, 1968, John jumps from the boat called Paul to the boat called Yoko. We try to find out why. Episode 2, Let It Be, we attempt to decipher John's provocative lyrics and suggestive behavior. Episode 3, The Ballad of John and Yoko, what's up with that? Episode 4, Alan Klein drove a wedge between John and Paul. In this episode, we explore the Northern Songs issue in depth. We give it time and attention because it is an emotionally significant issue with far-reaching implications. We think it's important to address for two reasons. First, we think it's never been properly examined in context from all sides and with all relevant information included. The discussion of it has always been based on faulty information, and the framing of it has been used to fuel and perpetuate some negative stereotypes about McCartney, and it has been used to justify and rationalize later behaviors against him. Second, we think the battle and subsequent loss of Northern songs may have had a larger emotional impact on Lennon and McCartney than has ever been acknowledged. This battle, which was filled with misinformation and political maneuvering orchestrated by Alan Klein, contributed to John and Paul's mounting trust issues and caused emotions to spiral, which would have contributed to the destabilization of the Lennon-McCartney partnership. Before we begin, I want to caveat that we looked at a number of sources to dig into the subject to determine what exactly happened uh, in the battle for Northern Songs, because it has been consistently misrepresented. And it's frustrating because there are discrepancies among the sources about the numbers. But the good news is the main gist of what happened and the number of shares that both Paul and John had at the point when the Northern Shares battle began is consistent, as is the reason for the discrepancy in the numbers of shares they had. 
Yeah, the 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 numbers are sl- are slightly inconsistent from book to book, from for- source to source. But again, we cobbled together like as many sources as we could and cross-reference them and sort of, you know, got this kind of median. Yes, we had to go with some numbers. Um, and so we we took the ones that made the most sense to us and that were consist- most consistently used. And and like I said, I mean, sometimes the, the numbers are just off by a little, you know, a percentage or two, but the gist of the story is the same. Okay, we're going to give a quick primer on the Northern Songs battle. This is the story as we understand it. Northern Songs is the Beatles publishing company formed in 1963 and majority owned by publisher Dick James, his partner, Emmanuel Charles Silver, Brian Epstein and Nems, Lennon McCartney, and to a much lesser extent, Starrin Harrison. In 1965, Northern Songs was restructured and taken public, so a percentage of it was made available to the public for purchase, and then the rest of the shares were split amongst the original partners. And um, we think the the loose network of original partners make up, at that point, the majority position in the company. Okay, so that's the situation. Now, in 1969, Dick James and his partner Silver apparently were feeling nervous about their stake in the company, either due to John's erratic behavior or issues with the Beatles or due to Alan Klein's appointment as manager of the Beatles, uh, you know, all are given as excuses for their sale. But in any event, they sold their shares to Lou Grade at ATB within days of Klein being appointed the Beatles manager, um, Lou Grade. He's some guy that owns ATB. Yeah, so he's just like a big time conglomerate yeah. owner of, business of whatever. some TV thing or production okay, company. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So he's the Roger Ailes of nineteen sixty nine. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly who he is. So the sale of these shares was a major betrayal to John and Paul because in selling his shares to Sir Lou Grade, Dick James was delivering him a huge victory because Lou Grade was mounting a takeover bid for majority ownership in the company. Now, again, Lennon and McCartney had a majority position in this company, you know, while all these partners were together. But once um, Dick James and his partner sell, then they lost that chunk of shares and it's gone to somebody else who already has a percentage of shares in the company. And so all of a sudden his position is strengthened and their position is weakened. And so that given that they wanted to regain the majority ownership of the company, they were forced to engage in a battle for Northern songs. And um, essentially, they had to convince investors to sell their shares to them rather than mm-hmm. Lou Grade, like Lou Grade was their enemy. And uh, so this, this whole time is yeah. making deals and trying to acquire as many shares as possible. Sure. So that's a broad overview yeah. of what's going on. And I think the story that is consistent is that uh, Dick James's sale to Lou Grade at ATV, just so people know, Lou Grade and ATV are the same thing. And so that sale started the battle on both sides for the majority ownership. What we need to know here is that when this company was originally created, John and Paul were both given the same number of shares in Northern Songs. They are started out as equal partners 
right? There is no junior and senior partner. They are equal partners. They are both senior partners. This is their company, and they're both given an equal amount to begin with. Right. Now, they weren't given, sadly, the majority ownership of this originally. You know, they were, you know, Dick James and his partner had equal numbers to Lennon and McCartney, as, you know, Brian had a good stake in it, too. So, you know, this way, it's not like, you know, this, this is the way that songwriters were kind of screwed in those days, but at least they were given a good chunk of the company. Yeah, right, right. They had something. Honestly, like if they had had better personal advisors, they probably both would have been investing since 1965. Or they would have had a better deal negotiated from them right well, from the yeah, start. Well, yeah, or that. Yeah, that's, that's yeah but that's the way it was done. Right. And, you know, and, and this is the situation that they find themselves in in 1969 when all of a sudden two of, two of those partners defect, sell shares to the other side, and now this battle begins. So why don't we go ahead and start with the issue of the extra shares? Yeah, let's do that because this is often characterized by authors as a terrible violation of trust and, you know, a major turning point in the Lennon-McCartney partnership. Right. And it's often used as evidence that Paul is a sneaky monster. (laughs) Right. Holy shit. What did he do? Is he planning a takeover of the company? Is he going to own John Lennon? Oh my God. I I think he's going to buy his own best friend. That's so (laughs) fucked up. He's going to buy the Beatles. (laughs) So the story has always been told one way, and unfortunately, the way it's been told is actually just not representative of the actual situation, you know, which is a shocker, I know, that, you know, Beatles authors got something wrong. Um, Yeah, I know, it's so weird. But um, this is generally the way it's told. So this is a quote. Lennon also discovered that McCartney had secretly been buying extra shares in Northern Songs meaning the two songwriters no longer had an equal share. Lennon was furious upon discovering the news. Okay, are you, you're reading from the Beatle Bible. Yeah. Because the, here's the thing is I saw it also in, in Womack's book secretly. Yeah. So why is it a secret? That's very um, – actually, Womack, his was even more inflammatory. I think it, he wrote – secretly he wrote behind john's back right he had been secretly so so my question is like if you're going to use words like secretly and behind someone's back then i want proof that mccartney instructed people to not tell john what he was doing which first of all i definitely don't think there's any such proof of that and secondly that would be stupid and ridiculous because this is all public record right Right. And I mean, you know, the, the, I don't know who it was that bought the shares for him. I think it's said that Peter Brown did, Mm -hmm. but I mean, that's, that's not exactly private. If Paul's like, Hey, Peter, can you go and buy, like he works for the organization. He may not have told John, he may not have, you know, brought it to John's attention. Hey, I'm going to go buy some, but it's not like he was like, keep this on the lowdown. Well, I mean, there's a difference. I didn't fucking secretly behind your back have a salad for lunch. I just didn't fucking tell you about it. Right. So there, there's a couple of issues going on here. So, you know, this was all kicked off by basically uh, um, Dick James being nervous because he was seeing some of the activities 
of the Beatles that he just, you know, wasn't comfortable with. So that kicks it off. So here's the thing is that Alan Klein, when he's doing prep for this meeting or whatever, he discovers that Paul owns a few more shares than John does. And of course he strategically waits and reveals this to John, not before the meeting, but reveals it in the middle of the meeting where it will cause maximum upset to John, which, right. which that in and of itself should absolutely disqualify him for being a manager of the Beatles. Right. Because he's not managing the group. He's pitting them against each other in this scenario. Yes. You know, he's unveiling this information to create maximum damage in terms of John's trust Yes. In Paul, you know, so I don't know what Alan Klein's end game was. I have to assume he wanted the Beatles to continue. And so maybe he thought just by embarrassing Paul and so diminishing him that he would give John the upper hand so that John could, you know, spearhead everything that maybe I, I assume that's what he was trying to do is weaken Paul in order to strengthen John. And it, it you know, must be like, you can't trust him, but you can trust me, John. Right. Yeah, that's a good point that he's showing him. I have the information. I wouldn't screw you. And look, Paul is screwing you. And so apparently they both had 750,000 shares of Northern Songs. So they put this on, you know, there was something like 7.5 million total shares. And between the two of them, I guess they had 1.5 million shares. And... When they actually had to put their shares on the table, John had 650,000 shares and Paul had 751,000 shares. And um, so it seemed like Paul had a little over 100,000 extra shares. And so that's fairly substantial. I could see why John would have Would go, what the fuck? And so, like we said, Klein gleefully, I assume, unveiled this information strategically to, to create <sighs> maximum damage. And apparently it worked. John was furious that this created a rift between them or, you know, some issue between them. And um, this is always used in, in Beatles books as proof of how sneaky Paul was. And... We, both of us, we have a slightly different perspective on this. Well, there's, so there's two things. There's two things to um, (laughs) explain the the discrepancy with the shares. One is that John gave away 100,000 to Julian upon his divorce from Cynthia. Okay. It was, it was put in a trust. Right. For Julian upon his divorce. Yes. So that's why he has 100,000 less than Paul. Nothing to do with Paul. And then. Additionally, Paul just bought a few extra shares and John, which John didn't do. John never went out and bought extra shares. So that's, that's why there's an uneven amount here. So Paul didn't take anything from John. He, all he did is use his own money to buy stock, which is his right to do. I, I don't know if John is even aware that he gave stock to his own son. Well, that's what I was going to say that, that John may not know, which, you know, is kind of on him for not knowing that, you know, he put a lot of stock in trust for his son, which was a great thing to do. 
but he doesn't seem to recognize that. So when we're talking about this massive betrayal, it's really, they've each started with 750,000 shares and Paul ends up with 1,000 shares extra. I mean, Paul explains it saying that he liked it. He, he felt like he wanted to invest in himself. That if he was going to, I guess the Eastman's told him that he should be, he should have investments. And he was like, well, I want to invest in me. That's the yeah. only thing I know. And so he bought a thousand extra shares. So really that's negligible. Yeah. And again, it's his money. He can buy stock as he sees fit. I mean, he can spend his money on gambling, on drugs, on stock, on whatever the fuck he wants. That's his money. I know, but I, I actually do get John's point of view. I mean, if that was my partner and we had started with equal shares, I would assume that I would get a heads up that, hey, you know what? You know, it's just the kind of like a sense that they're going to stay equal in terms of their ownership of the company. And, and, like, and I agree with you that Paul has every right to buy more stock in his company. As we've discussed, Paul buying more shares does not take away from John. It's not a zero-sum game between them where they owe, each own you know, it's 100% of the company yeah. between the two of them. But on the other hand, I do understand John being surprised and hurt knowing that Paul has more shares than he does and not having been told about it. Well, I definitely get that part. Well, first of all, I think John doesn't really understand the money. And no. he, well, that's he has problem. magical fucking thinking. And... You know, it all plays into whatever his fears and paranoias are. Which, at this time, were hugely about money. You know, there's a, there is a, an interview that he gives at the beginning of April where he says he's much poorer. He's the poorest beetle because of his divorce. And, you know, he paid right, off right, debts right. for Yoko. And so he's already complaining about this. This is how, how Klein got an in was he complained to the pa papers that he, they were going to be broke. So... John's exhibiting a lot of anxiety and insecurity about money at this time, especially compared to the other Beatles, which means Paul, because the only other Beatle that's equally yeah. rich to him is Paul, right? Yeah. So he's already feeling like he's poor because he's got a divorce and Paul hasn't gotten a divorce and he had to pay off some of Yoko's debts. And then, then in this meeting, he finds out that for some reason, Paul has so many more shares than him. And in reality, again, if, if if these guys were properly represented and had any kind of business minds, they would just say, it's it's like me having an extra dollar rather than, you know, you. Yeah. For them, it was like an extra thousand on, you know, out of 750,000 shares. So as much as I kind of agree with John that Paul should have given him a heads up, that's all I think he owed him. You know, on the other hand, eh, it's not that big a deal. He didn't take it from John. Well, I definitely don't think it's about the numbers. Because, again, they became unequal when John had to settle on with his divorce and give money to his kid. So, I mean, they're unequal I just, then. I what, just what is Paul supposed well, to do? He's supposed to give away $100,000 to his non-existent <laughs> dependent child? I mean, right, that's exactly. that's fucking ridiculous. So... I get the point. It's it's not that. It has nothing to do with the actual numbers. He's just upset that Paul bought shares and didn't tell him or whatever. Yes. 
they weren't going to stay. They probably weren't going to stay equal as they used their shares for different things. You know, John happened to have had to use his for the divorce. I don't think John knows that he did based on his reaction. Well, I, yeah, it makes sense that John would react badly to this because he's clueless. And he, you know, he thinks that they're magic and all that sort of dumb shit. But like, for me, I'm a hardliner about this. Like, you're much more empathetic to John's viewpoint than I am. For me, I'm just like, why the fuck would Paul have to consult with John about how he spends his personal money? That's ridiculous to me. I understand the sort of like, implicit agreement that since we write together, or even if we don't write together, we still are calling it Lennon McCartney and feeding it. There's still, George Martin says in this time, they're still very much partners. No matter what, they are still on the same team. Yeah. And so I, I just understand why John might feel like, well, I always want us to have the same number of shares so that we're equal in our own company. But you can see, to your point, you can see how his lawyers probably went in and, and made this deal and they did he didn't even know which automatically made them not equal anymore. And what's Paul supposed to do about that situation? Well, and also, I'm very skeptical that John's sensibilities are being offended here and that he's, like, really hurt by Paul's disloyalty. I don't think it's that. I think he's just pissed that Paul has more than him. Oh, no, I think it's a bit that that his sensibilities are a little... little he feels a little bit betrayed by that. I also 100% agree that he's pissed off that like he's, he's out and out competitive with Paul at this point. And so, you know, he doesn't like to know that Paul has way more than him. Well, and, and I can see how Paul would be like, well, John, I'm sorry. I don't have exes and fucking, you know, kids from my first marriage and a fucking deadbeat girlfriend who's got debts all over town too. Like, sorry, those are your problems, bro. Those are not my problems. Like I had the, I had the foresight to buy a few extra shares and like, like why would I tell you about it? I don't run my fucking financial decisions by you. Well, I think that they did talk a lot about finances because remember Paul says on the cover of Abbey road, they're talking or some of the photos of, of them before they do the crossing. He and John look like they're in a serious discussion. He said that he was lecturing John on his need to do taxes. So I think that they do, <laughs> you know, just, just the fact that their entire income is tied to each other, you know, that I think that they do talk. And, and, you know, it's interesting because Paul always says that he, he hates business too. He just happens to be, a little more bit responsible better. Yeah. and a little bit better than John. But here's the thing is I don't think Paul probably because Paul didn't really defend himself in this situation. So Paul, Paul probably didn't know why he had an extra 101,000 shares, you know, like unless Paul was privy to John's details, <coughs> he may just think like, Holy shit. I bought a lot more than I thought I did. You know, it's not like Paul is, Calling up the, I don't know how they did it back then. <laughs> the no. traders, yes. In yeah, those exactly. Days, yeah. He's just like, he. he's just got a, people to do shit for him. So he's just like, oh, get me some of this. Get me some of that. I mean, you know, and in some ways, like this is always used in books as like the ultimate betrayal. It's like Paul had an extra thousand chairs. But meanwhile, John uh, is bringing a new partner into the studio and signing with Alan Klein without discussing with Paul. Like John's behaving in a lot of ways that, 
would indicate to Paul that they're not exactly 100% on the same team. So to, to cut, even though I think that Paul should have told him, to cut Paul some slack, I mean, John wasn't exactly behaving like a gentleman either. Yeah, it, it's just hard to reconcile how John would think bringing Yoko into the studio with the Beatles and making records with her and, de- you know, declaring that she's his new partner and all that stuff would not be a betrayal, but this would be. Or, you know, unilaterally uh, deciding that Klein is his manager. I mean, there seems to be a double standard. Yeah. Uh, no, there's definitely a, a sort of like, um, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. Anytime Paul acts in any way that is considered s- selfish, like if he's acting on behalf of himself and his family, it's like, <gasps> how dare you don't put John Lennon first? Right. So while I do believe that it probably was an issue for John at the t- at the moment, like in the moment of the meeting or whatever. Yeah. I think it's a total bullshit red herring when people are like, that was what turned them. That's what, because Paul like showed himself to be sneaky and underhanded <laughs> by publicly buying something in the public sphere. You know, fucking ridiculous. And then John knew from that moment he could never trust him again. Yeah, and I think what supports this notion is that John, other than one mild comment, never really brings up this issue again. Throughout the seventies, John harps on yeah. many issues that bothered him, yeah. but. You know, he doesn't focus on this issue. That's right. So uh, he did comment on it at least once. Um, Like you said, it was mild and it was like one sentence. So he commented on it, but not as a defining moment. Right. As As opposed to the numerous times that he pinpointed Paul's quitting in mm-hmm. April of 1970 or Paul's general insensitivity to him. Right. Or Paul's creative infidelity. Right. Yes. Those, you can tell that those are all real tension points for John, whereas the shares issue, you know, other than a comment or two, you know, it's not something that he brings up as this major issue between them. We we have repeated support from numerous sources for all these other things. And like shares, it's just like a lost issue. Yeah. Uh, There's another example um, John McMillan, he wrote Beatles versus Stones, and he used excerpts from his book to write an article in Newsweek about um, Abbey Road, the breakup, this particular period. And he wrote, it was revealed that McCartney had been secretly, there's that word again, buying shares of Northern Songs. That was a flagrant violation of a verbal agreement the two had made to keep their shares on an equal footing. When Lennon discovered the double cross, he grew more hostile towards McCartney than ever. Um, Wow. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Again, (laughs) um, Paul's accused of double crossing John and flagrantly violating a verbal agreement. Now I've never heard of this verbal agreement. Um, Right. Either John has some info, some special info information that we just don't know about, which I I think is highly suspect. Or Um, it's just assumed that it must have been a verbal agreement because there's definitely no written agreement. Yeah, more likely. I mean, this is this is sort of one of these stories that continues to grow. And 
I think you're right that it's just assumed there was a verbal agreement because John was really mad. Right. Again, a double cross, it, it, it definitely does not imply that Paul just purchased public shares of, of something <laughs> you know said hey peter get me some shares <laughs> right that definitely implies that like there was some it like insider trading or something like it like the double cross it's true i mean the this is so coded so heavily coded with the idea that paul is incredibly sneaky and you know, violating the trust. I mean, oh, if you're reading this and you've never heard about, you know, you don't know like, a lot oh about them. God, I didn't know Paul was such a piece of shit. Yeah. Right. Well, in here, okay, a flagrant violation of a verbal agreement the two had made to keep their shares on an equal footing. Honestly, like I would argue that they are on equal footing because the 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 the, the, the difference in their shares is so minor. You mean other than the hundred thousand that Julian has in trust, which yeah. is still, which is fundamentally still John's shares. It all it went to right, is yeah, his right, son. Right, right, right. It's still in his family, you know. But like, it's a, it's a, it's a handful of, it's a handful of shares. It does keep them on equal footing. Because oh, yeah. oh, because it's not as if they were, they, I mean, again, this makes it sound as if they went into the meeting and all of a sudden, you know, the consortium was like, oh, oh, I see. Well, McCartney has so many more shares. Well, never mind. We're not even talking to Lennon. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Lennon. We're just going to deal with Mr. McCartney here. He's the clear owner of this company. It's like, what are you, what are, what are you fucking even talking about? If, if it had said there was a verbal agreement that the two of them would never purchase additional stock without consulting one another, that I could, that I would, I would say, okay, well, if Paul promised that he would never buy stock, then yeah, then he's breaking a promise. I mean, again, I, we don't know I, the details we, we of don't, what we that don't agreement know. are. We or if know. there was an agreement. I tend to think it was just a loose, like, cool, we've got this many, you know, and it was kind of just Implied. an unspoken assumed. Yes. Uh, that's that me we, too. That we are going to, you know, it's our company. We'll probably just say, you know, grow at the same time, you know. And again, I kind of fault Paul for not giving John a heads up. But I also do not, like you said, is a thousand shares. It's so minuscule. It's almost negligible. And I don't think that Paul was doing it in a way that was, it wasn't a double cross. It was more like thoughtlessness. And and this, this quote that you just read contains, there's so many assumed things in the way the story is told. Like it ends, you know, with the point that, you know, he, John, grew more hostile toward McCartney than ever. And it's kind of like there's this built-in assumption that John is just furious and hostile towards Paul constantly. And this is just another support point. Whereas we've just sort of detailed the fact that the guys were pretty shitty to Paul. And yes, John was emotionally worked up all that year. Yeah, I mean, every, every account says that John got got real heated in that. You know, when when he found out in in the meeting, he mm-hmm. he got mad. I mean, everybody says he got mad about it. But I mean, hello, you know, as as we detailed, Alan Klein 
actually set that up to maximize drama. The, the, the damage and the drama. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think he did it to embarrass Paul, but I think what ended up happening was John got embarrassed and that's why he flew off the handle because he was out of the loop. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is, this is an issue that we've talked about a little bit that one of the things that John mentions later about Paul, you know, one of his issues with Paul is, he mentions that Paul had all kinds of women he didn't know about. So I think that there is an issue with John where he feels embarrassed. Like Paul's got stuff going on in his life that John doesn't know about. And I think that that does embarrass and it worries John. You know, Paul is living this life partly that he's not in the loop about. Yeah, I think that I think that hurts his feelings, too. You know, in, the, in in 72, John's still talking about Paul being his best friend. So I think that when he finds out that Paul's doing stuff that he doesn't know about, it hurt, does hurt him. Yeah. Because he assumes that he's the most important person in Paul's life, you know, or one of them anyways. And I don't think it's crazy that John thinks this either, because this is what Paul is to him. He is probably thinking, hey, why aren't you talking to me about anything involving Northern songs? This is you and me, our company. I suspect John thinks he's the one that's more caring and committed and loyal than Paul. And issues like this are proof points to John that this is the case, rather than simply being a situation where Paul is being thoughtless, like he's reading into Paul's actions. And, you know, maybe Paul is being thoughtless and just thinks that John doesn't care. I suspect that John doesn't see the impact of his own actions and is, you know, just hurt by things Paul does and, and maybe doesn't factor in. Well, I've been acting in a way that would suggest to Paul I don't care. But anyways, I can understand why John would be very hurt and um, angry about the situation. The point I don't like about it is that there's an assumption that Paul, that John hates Paul at this or doesn't like Paul at this <laughs> point. You know, that, that you know, if you read into it, it that he's, this is just another, another proof point and John is constantly furious and it, it's not the case it's like yes John is emotional during this period yeah and he gets mad at him yeah for sure but like well we also have stories of them like having dinner at Paul's house during this time when Linda was super pregnant which means you know late in the in summer, the summer. But I guess that's my issue with it is the assumption that that they've already turned and don't like each other versus the fact that they are worked up with each other so that's the so-called extra shares issue, which is constantly used as exhibit A to Paul's duplicitous nature and his desire to slowly take over the Beatles. <laughs> to own the Beatles. <laughs> to, own, to own all of Apple bit by bit, one share at a time behind everybody's back <laughs> yes it was paul's nefarious plan for world domination and beetle ownership <laughs> leadership through ownership yep. so the so the the point of that was not to exonerate paul um no because he he, he did fail to give john's a heads up that's indisputable right but i think what, what we wanted to do was explore the issue so that all the points of like so that people had the full context so that we all sort of understood the different points of view and looked at it with maybe not the lens that Paul is after world domination or, you know, is trying to sneakily buy the Beatles, you know, that maybe his intentions were fine. And giving, yeah, maybe, maybe he was literally just investing some of his money. Yeah. 
And maybe, and, and maybe, maybe he, this was blown out of proportion by the actual demon king here. The, the, the point is to give people the information. So like if, if you have all the information now and you still are just like, no, still the devil. Um, fine. Then, then that's fine. That's your opinion. And, and you don't have to like him or whatever. But it, we do think it's only fair that all the information is presented. Yes. And Which it just, it, it just simply is not in any book. Right. And when, when all of this is laid out, you know, we just had a debate about this. And, you know, while I still am a little critical of Paul, I also now understand his point of view. And, and you know, your point, Phoebe, which is constantly like, what was he going to, what, what was the benefit to him? is a really good question. I mean, so that it really comes off as just a bit of carelessness because there is no end game on Paul's side. He just simply ended up with some shares. And, you know, as we've said, Paul seems to have wanted them to be together. So Right, I'm- right. Like, it, like if he had secretly bought five times as many shares as John, then I would be like, what the fuck, Paul? What are you are you, what right, is the right. point of that? Right. But right. it's like chump change. Right. You know, we know that Paul loved the band, so he probably wasn't doing anything particularly evil with these extra shares. I remember hearing him say, not uh, related to this issue, but um, he said that when he married Linda, when he was talking to, to his father-in-law, he, he was basically like, until then, I just sort of like put my money under the mattress. And he asked me like, well, what are your investments? And he's like, uh, he's like, well, I, you know, I have it in the bank or something. And he's like, that's not good enough. He's like, you, you have to diversify, Paul. You got to put your money someplace, right, you know, right. which is basic financial advice that anybody who is not living hand to mouth would get nowadays. Right. I mean, Lee and John uh, Eastman both were shocked. You know, John John makes the point that he was shocked at the last lack of sophistication and the lack of like planning things for the future that the Beatles right. like the way that they were managing their money. And so you can see that Paul's all of a sudden got this new this new team in his life suggesting that he's doing this and he's starting to react from this advice and unfortunately it kind of ended up biting him in the ass. It it's very easy to like it. It's John's situation where he took his shares and gave it to his son as part of, you know, his finances that he's investing in his family. I mean, Paul is doing the same thing with his family. Right. I mean, and the thing that bothers me about this whole situation is that Paul has been indicted based on incorrect information. Nobody has really given him the benefit of the doubt, looked at the situation as a whole, and they have kind of missed who is the real bad player in this situation. Like it's irresponsible. Right. Well, the the extra shares is just like day one of the battle. (laughs) It's a blip. It's a blip in this story, which the entire rest of the story has been sacrificed just so that, you know, authors can focus on this stupid extra shares issue. Right. Right. They're basically the largest story. About, about John and Paul losing their publishing rights? Yeah, like, and the whole sense of insecurity and instability that this battle would have had on them. 
you know, has been ignored and forsaken in order to serve part of the narrative that's been absolutely blown out of proportion. Right. So now we can move on to the battle part of the story. We've explained why when they initially came to the table, John and Paul had unequal amounts of shares in Northern songs. But now onto the much bigger part of the story, which is the battle for majority stake in the company. Basically, they're trying to get more than 50% of the shares. And so they're trying to make deals with different shareholders to gain the controlling interest. And I guess there was a lot of back dealing. Klein's trying to make deals. The Eastman's are trying to think things through. The thing is, is that um, John kind of fucked up this deal too, in that they wanted to negotiate with a consortium to be on their side. But then John, typical John, ended up basically derailing negotiations with this consortium because he announced at this board meeting that he wasn't prepared to be fucked around by men in suits sitting on their fat arses in the city, which shocker did not endear them to, to them. So the men in suits took umbrage, walked away from the negotiations with the Beatles. So basically like John managed to get in there and really fuck yeah. the negotiations. Because, because John has to be all punk rock in the meeting and being like, fuck the establishment. And they're like, <laughs> Oh really? Okay. Well, anyway, um, we're done with this. According to the Norman book on Paul. Paul McCarty, The Life by Philip Norman. He makes the point that the consortium played both sides all summer long and almost sold to Lennon McCartney despite John's, you know, crazy insults to them. But, you know, was they were actually put off by the presence of Klein, who, you know, they had read about in the papers, you know, about the biggest wheeler dealer in town. Right, after learning about Klein's numerous lawsuits, the SEC investigations, and everything else, they were hesitant about dealing with him. So apparently Klein had to distance himself from Northern Songs in order for Lennon and McCartney to negotiate. And I guess they thought they were going to persuade the consortium to sell to them, but ultimately, for whatever reason, they decided to go with Lou Grade. And significantly, the day they finally officially lost control of Northern Songs was September 19th, the day before the infamous divorce meeting. And then apparently, uh, you know, once this all went through and they did not win the majority of their shares, they sold them, you know, kind of out of an act of spite to Lou Grade. You know, and it was kind of like, I guess they had just thrown in the towel and just said, fine, fuck it, we're going to sell. And so Paul and John got some cash, but then they didn't own Northern Songs anymore. And it's kind of, Norman makes the point that it's kind of unfortunate that they didn't just hold them and then continue this battle in the future. Yeah. But you can see how maybe it was just an emotional, knowing these two, knowing that this rage for about six months or four or five months, maybe it was just an emotional reaction. Like, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I do think it was just like they were both really emotional and angry about it. And it was kind of like, well, fuck it. We lost. Yeah. Let's walk it's away. Over. Let's get yeah. the cash. It's over. Yeah. Which actually, you know, brings us to the next point. Uh, you know, so there's the business side of the shares issue. And, you know, as we've said, it's like every book uses this as proof of Paul's sneakiness. 
you know, and his betrayal to John. And really, there there was a lot more information that needed to be taken into account um, to look to look at this the situation clearly. But there is also the as the emotional aspect. This was akin, as you just said, to losing their children. You know, we've got a quote from Peter Brown, who says, who said that uh, to John and Paul Northern songs wasn't just a collection of compositions. It was like a child creating flesh and blood and selling it to their business antagonist, Sir Lou Grade, was like putting that child into an orphanage. So, you know, this isn't just a business issue that we're dealing with. You know, that's, the, the, you know, Northern Songs was one of the main bonds. It was their creative output yep. between the two of them, you know? Yeah, they both use that um, metaphor also, referred to their songs as their children. Right. Right. I mean, Paul often does when he's when he's told to choose one. It's like, I mean, don't you don't let see... me choose between my babies, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I mean, and, and I think that that's. And John takes the metaphor way too far. I mean, didn't at one point he was like, "This is Paul's baby. I contributed to the education and the upbringing of the child." Like, all right, John, you're really like belaboring the the the, the metaphor. This, I don't know what oh song God. he was talking about, but. <laughs> Oh, John. It's very sweet. <laughs> He's got their metaphorical marriage and their <laughs> metaphorical raising of their children slash songs. The point is, is that's how emotional they are about these, you know, this issue of Northern songs is they are like their children and they're a joint creation. You know, even though John right. later on splits them and says, I did this and that, you know, he's full of shit. He also he backtracked on all of that. And he was like, yeah, I lied. Yeah. I was, I lied. I was being exactly. emotional. Right. And, and the that's frustrating, a quote. that's a direct quote, people, Mark Lorison. Right. I lied. <laughs> he does that occasionally when he's upset. And then yes, he tells he us does. that he lies. So yes. we should believe him that sometimes yes, he, he lies. he admitted flat out, I lied. Right, and and that's the thing is that, you know, until John got emotionally upset and, you know, they started with a whole breakup and they started, he started to detail, I did this, Paul did that. It, you know, before that it was real, um, you, know, you know, as we said, it was a very much a joint, you know, that it was Lennon-McCartney. It was like you said, it was us, it was theirs. Yeah. It's not just that they're emotional about their songs it's that they created them together like they right. are the parents right. they are theirs yes like their joint creations the output of their creation right. as we said in the last episode you know we talked about john's mindset in 66 when he's talking about only 100 people in the world truly understand their music right and i think that you know they both have said repeatedly how much they influenced how much they loved working with each other how much mm -hmm. they inspired each other right and the result of which was northern songs and i think you know when northern songs was under attack and you know they were going to lose it that that i think that that m might have made them incredibly insecure about their bond and connection and tie to each other. You know, it's like as long as they've got that, they are bound to each other. So no matter how shitty they are to each other, it's like, well, we have our, you know, we own this company together and fundamentally we are Lennon McCartney, which, you know, George Martin still says in the spring of 69. But if that goes away yeah. and they don't own that anymore, 
It's true. Well, and they know, I mean, obviously they know they can write on their own. It's like they're only there because they want to be at this point. And if, so if they don't want to be, that's scary. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like they, they're under no obligation, really. They're the songwriting collaboration. It's kind of tentative at this point. But yeah, I mean, if all of a sudden Northern songs, the, the, the bond that keeps them together goes away. Yeah. Like right, right now it's kind of like, well, we have a joint company and, you know, we are Northern and, you know, Lennon McCartney. And it's like, no matter how badly you treat each other, you're tied. And so there's yeah. a sense of security that, well, we're all going to come back together anyway. So if that goes away... You know, and you're just kind of writing for something that a bunch of people in the city own, like just shares of. Yeah, yeah. Then what the hell? Yeah, and Dick Dick Jane, James actually talks about um, the reaction. I guess he he made the sale, and he says that he made the sale he made the sale to Lou Grade because he said he firmly believe that it would have been wrong to sell Northern songs to either Lennon or McCartney individually. But he said that when he met the two songwriters at McCartney St. John's Wood home, he says, Paul was annoyed, but John was inconsolable. He was hurt and I was very sorry. I, you know, I think this quote is, is interesting because, you know, it says Paul was annoyed. So, you know, maybe Paul wasn't showing his emotions at that time, but it says John was inconsolable. He was hurt. He was very hurt. And I think that this counters this idea that, you know, John was disconnected and only interested in Yoko. I mean, I, to me, this shows how incredibly in, emotionally invested he is in Lennon McCartney in Northern. The fact that he was inconsolable means that there was something, there was a huge loss to him. You know, like they, he was deeply, deeply, deeply hurt and attached to Northern. So, I mean, this wasn't even the final. This wasn't even when they actually lost Northern. This is when Dick James sold a chunk of his company. I mean, the actual final was on September 19th, the day before John (laughs) says he wants a divorce. But I just think it's interesting to, to see how devastated John was about this situation. Yes. In fact, I have a quote here from John in the early 60s on this subject. He said, Northern Songs is a long-term thing, and it rests on Paul and I writing songs until we're 60. Unless something happens, there's nothing to stop Paul and I writing hits when we're old. Oh, that's, that's so sweet. And I mean, that's such a good example of the fact that this Northern was kind of a a manifestation of their dream, you know, Lennon McCartney that was created when they were like 15, 16 years old. And it's interesting because, you know, he is talking about it as in they have thought this through. This is their future. Northern is their future. You know, they're, yeah. this is like their adult life. He's 23 at this time, yeah. or however. And he's talking about this continuing until they're 60. And, and this partnership, like he's not saying I will continue to write. He's like, Paul and I. Um, Paul and I. We will continue to write. Yeah. He, and he's not saying it in a vague way, like, oh, sure, you know, indefinitely. He's like, until we're 60. He's like, I, I've literally envisioned it. I can see us right now. We're 60. Right. <laughs> you know, we have a little exactly. house in southern Ireland or something. <laughs> you know, like, 
<laughs> he's, he's, right. he's literally like envisioned 40 years in the future and they are still together at 60. We don't have an exact date for this quote, but it's early 60s. But he says this again. He repeats this I don't, late 66 or early 67. He's interviewed. Yeah, like Sergeant Pepper and, era. <laughs> yeah, Sergeant Pepper going into EMI. And he makes the point that, you know, this could go on forever. So it's it's something, it's a, a concept right. that he envisions his future with Paul yes. going on forever. Right. And in, in that um, in that Sergeant Pepper quote, he's talking about him and Paul. He's not even talking about the band. He's like, who, yeah, it was who the, the songwriting thing. what happens with the band? It's like the band can come and go, but Paul and I will be writing forever. You know, Paul actually addresses this as well. He, he makes a point about it in what, 1963, 64. He sort of says, I don't know what will happen with the Beatles, but you know, John and I will continue. We'll continue. That's right. This idea of Lennon and McCartney continuing, like being somewhat separate from the Beatles, being this mm -hmm. thing that they both imagined being their future together. It's something that they both jo jointly believed in and something that was consistent in terms of how they talked about their future. Right. It's a big difference to say, we'll see where it goes. You know, it it's going great for now. And who knows how long it could last, which would be, you know, sort of a more typical thing to say, even at that age, even at an optimistic young age, you know, you'd say, who knows? You know, maybe we'll right. go all the way to the top or something. But to, to literally say like, well, don't worry about us because we know exactly what we're going to be doing 40 years <laughs> from now. Like we've, right, exactly. we've already figured it, it out. So Yeah, we we figured it out at 15 that we're going to be Rogers and Hammerstein. And, and, you know, and so whatever happens with this band thing, you know, who knows? But we will continue when we're talking about Northern songs, that that's how deeply connected to their identity, their core dream of life and their connection together. You know, this is not John or Paul saying, well, I hope I can continue to write songs. This is we. John's choice of words, I think is meaningful too. I mean, he literally calls it a long-term thing. And I mean, if you think of Northern songs as like their sort of, that's like the marriage papers of their business relationship or whatever. That's a dumb right, analogy, right. but like- Well, the legal manifestation. That's, of their songwriting, uh, yeah. You know, that it's kind of like, oh shit, we just made this official. I mean, l listen to how excited he sounds. Right. It's gone from their dream to something that's real and that they are building a future together. It is exciting. He sounds like a newlywed. He's saying this is a long-term thing, and it rests on Paul and I writing songs <laughs> until we're sixty. Right. Like and, I'm fully committed. Yes. Unless yes. something unforeseen happens that I can't even imagine what it could be. I can't even imagine what could possibly tear us apart. Paul and, and I, I are going to be fucking sitting, you know, on our little hotel beds, <laughs> you know, with our, <laughs> with our right. fucking little guitars, eyeball to eyeball. There's nothing to stop Paul and I writing hits when we're old. There's nothing to stop us. But I mean, but this is... The situation in April 1969, John and Paul are probably, I'm sure, equally devastated by the situation. And then they mount this battle for the next four months. And I think if we want to use the child analogy, that this is raging throughout the summer as they try and make deals. And it's both a business issue for them, but much more importantly, I think it's an emotional issue and Beyond being, you know, their creative output, it's about the tie between John and Paul and whether that will continue. Yeah.
you know, we're, we're sort of tracing the story of the breakup and all the emotional, you know, the reasons for certain behaviors and the actions of the players. And I think that this is an issue that hasn't been taken seriously enough or explored enough. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it would have had incredible impact on them during this time that maybe we're going to lose, you know, control of basically what they do, which is write songs. That's right. You know, and I think that it was really important for us in terms of progressing the narrative to stop and think about this, because to me, this is kind of the underpinning of what they'd probably be thinking about for the six months before the divorce statement is just, you know, there's kind of like this constant drum of we might lose this if we don't win the battle yeah how 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 would that not play into the story here and yet i've never seen a single book focus on it not once yeah it's weird it's it's and and unfortunately what they do is bring it up quickly and highlight the fact that you know paul had more shares and therefore he was sneaky right, and right. and that's all they care about yeah. then they're done right so I, they're like northern songs well anyway that's not important <laughs> to the story of the beatles <laughs> yeah the thing that paul to this day continues well i guess now now he his shares have started to revert back to him or the company has but you know this is something that has bothered paul for the the, the 50 years 50 since. years yeah right so i mean you know, it's it's one of the it's one of the, the the legacies of the breakup. It's one of the worst things that happened right. in 1969. It's exactly, they lost this their shares. They lost their controlling interest in the company the day before they actually broke up. So you know, to, to um, not think about it, I think is just irresponsible and lazy. It shows how easily distracted and and how focused the authorship is on dumb shit, like sensational things. Yeah, yeah. So with this episode, I think that we had, um, you know, as we said at the beginning, we had two jobs to do. One was help continue telling our story and setting the stage of what's going on at this time. But simultaneously, we had to dismantle this issue that's been blown out of proportion. That's almost become a red herring in the story. It's like, oh, well, I get why John was so upset because, you know, Paul was that sneaky devil. And and so, you know, the, the outcome that I hope people take is that this is an important issue that's probably affecting their state of mind and to maybe question the whole Paul being sneaky based on this piece of evidence. Right. It's like we talked about the whole diva issue in the last episode. Right. Right. So I feel like we're doing double duty here. One is progressing the story. The second is sort of dismantling certain the a trope that kind of throws the story a little bit. I mean, I definitely understand the impulse and like the instinct to assign blame because if you knew a couple who worshipped each other for 10 years and you're like that those people have the best marriage in the world and then all of a sudden for no discernible reason that anybody can understand, things go kablooey, and one party fucking hates the other party all of a sudden. Right. And starts saying, like, he's a terrible person. He, you know, blah, 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 blah. He's this, he's that, he's whatever. You would assume 
something happened like that guy probably yep. cheated or something yep. right i mean that's the first thought that you would have is like uh oh what he do exactly you know? exactly and if you did you found out that he hadn't cheated and there didn't seem to be anything on the surface that he had done and he seemed to not want to end the marriage i think that you would start digging for okay what are the other issues what are the other reasons that this person would have right. like what did he do You know, I have to admit that every time I read the story of the breakup in the past, I was horrified when we got to the shares issue. Because to me, Paul's behavior seemed inexcusable. You know, I always felt like, oh, wow, Paul, you really were the asshole there. You know, so now that now that we know more about this, I'm frustrated to know that the situation has been and continues to be consistently misrepresented where you know Paul is just made to look as shady as possible you know I don't yeah I don't want to forgive him because I actually do think he's in the wrong here still but there's a big chunk of information that's missing it's sort of a matter of what motives you attribute to somebody if you think he's he did it mostly out of carelessness thoughtlessness um, or, and like, and maybe a little bit of passive aggressiveness or whatever, um, then that's one thing. But like to characterize it as like some fucking double cross and a sneaky, like one upsmanship, like, right. it's just weird. Like, a, you know, exactly. And it's also inconsistent with his other behavior, which is really trying to keep the band together and supporting John, you know, at the beginning of January and George when he leaves, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like Paul is not trying to separate from the group or undermine the group at this point. So that's right. Well, and plus it, it doesn't really give him any advantage. So no, no. I mean, he, you know, he wants them all to be on the same side. So agreed that this, this didn't turn out well for Paul and it doesn't look good. But it, I think that if you assume that Paul's motives were probably good, then it's a different story. And I think this connects to an issue that you and I have discussed a lot, which is that authors seem to have grabbed hold of this story as evidence that Paul was devious and sneaky and underhanded with John, mm-hmm. you know, as a means of justifying John's later behavior to Paul. Yeah. And I think, yep. I think that, for them, there has to be a reason why John is so angry with Paul. And, you know, this is probably the most egregious act that Paul committed at the time. Like, this is the biggest mistake or the worst thing that he did at the time. So it's been really blown up as, like, this huge issue. Because otherwise, you know, we just have a lot of evidence that Paul wanted to keep the band together, the supportive of John, the supportive of John mm-hmm. and Yoko. And so, you know, there's no explanation for why John was treating them the way he did later on, right? I honestly think that that the entire history of the Beatles was retrofit to confirm John's version of the story from 1970. Yeah. Like, they're trying to find the smoking gun. Right. When John came out of therapy... And made the Plastic Ono Band at the height of his self-martyrdom mm-hmm. and his disillusionment over the Beatles' dream, whatever that mm-hmm. entailed. He blamed everything on Paul. 
And the self-appointed Beatle scholars have ever since then been desperately trying to prove that Paul is some sort of despicable monster. Like he, he must have been for the things that John did to him in public and did to his career in 70 and 71. Because those attacks turned John into such a small person. And people who view John as a hero don't want to acknowledge that level of extreme jealousy and pettiness. So the solution has become to blame the victim. It must be Paul's fault. Right. And I mean, I think that it's interesting that, that, you know, you can't help but notice that John is really angry at Paul. And so I think it's right to look at what happened. It's just they're kind of pinpointing, they're pointing at the wrong things, the wrong reason for John's anger. You know what I mean? Like you said, we're we're sort of looking at these red herrings that, not to say that this didn't really upset John, because fair enough, it it might have, in the short term, it may have seemed, as we said, it may have contributed to trust issues, especially if Klein is spinning behind the scenes, you know, you can't trust him. However, I think that there are much more substantial reasons for John being angry. And these are just sort of some of the external reasons that people have grabbed onto versus the real reason that John is upset, you know? I I feel like every author has been trying to make the case that Paul has poor character because otherwise John just comes off as very, very cruel and bitter. Right. He comes off like a bitter ex. Right. So this gives justification. You know what I mean? Like this, this justifies his anger and his lashing out. Right. But from my perspective, it's not even a matter of right versus wrong. It's a breakup, meaning it's most likely about couple shit, like personal shit that we don't even know about. Like, I don't, I don't doubt at all that John was hurt by Paul over the years. I don't doubt that. I'm not going to say that I don't think Paul ever did anything wrong. I mean, that's between between them. It's only fair that we make an honest attempt to see where that's coming from. Right. To untangle it. Probably the best we're going to do is sketch out the patterns of human behavior that are occurring here and sort of figure out what we can draw from that information. The rationale that like the other three Beatles must have hated Paul and Paul must have deserved all the treatment he got is just like a flawed premise because it's just as likely that the other three Beatles were capable of bad judgment, which we have evidence for in the case of Klein, right? Mm -hmm. And that they could have also occasionally been acting in their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. As I believe John and George both were in 1969. And Ringo. And Ringo, for that matter. Yep. And they could have been petty about shit because that happens in families all the time. Which I definitely think played into this as well. Yes. And there's also the element that the other two may have been susceptible to peer pressure and to John's pressure in a way that Paul never was. We have multiple examples of that throughout the entire history of the Beatles. Well, that's an interesting point that I I think that is not usually acknowledged is that Paul never seems to cave to John's peer pressure. 
you know? Well, of course it's not acknowledged because it makes Paul stand out in a way like, you know, it's okay to call Paul the black sheep when Stuart says it because Stuart was trying to say it as an insult. Right. But I do believe Paul is the black sheep. I've always thought that. That's why he's, that's one of the most attractive things about him from my perspective is that he does resist their peer pressure. And like, I've, find that well he does what he wants you know and that is said he repeated. does what he wants and, he, and, he, and it's the same artistically as well exactly again exactly. i was gonna say that the fact that the, yeah that this fucking guy is in a rock band and like he's doing dance hall in the mid-60s yep. like that's so balls out I it love really that about is him. it really is and i mean and, and and he should be given credit for that is that he was not part of the gang he was never fucking part of the gang that followed John. That's John right. and Paul that's right. were the gang. So that's why John respects him. That's right. And treats him like an equal. And, and Paul, exactly. As I've tried to delineate before, yes, there is an element of John is the ringleader and he's the leader of the other guys in a way that Paul isn't. Yes. I'll concede that. Yep. But that doesn't make Paul one of the followers. No, it doesn't. And and I would like to point out that we have talked about the fact that Paul has a little bit more dominance musically. That's right. So And did from day one. Let's not pretend. Yes, when he threw all the other members of the Quarrymen out and changed their dress. And, and taught John how to play the fucking guitar. Right, and brought in the member that he wanted. I mean, you know, the, the fact that that goes unacknowledged as a sign of le- leadership and power within the group is insane. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, back to this subject. For authors to try to prosecute Paul on the basis of Lennon's, you know, bitter after-the-fact testimony is flawed. We, we should be looking at the events objectively and looking at the emotional stuff equitably. Yeah. With the understanding that emotional truth is subjective mm-hmm. and that John's truth is no more important than Paul's truth. For some reason, I feel like the Beatles authorship doesn't understand this concept. Like, it's possible for John to be angry and hurt about a lot of things that are invisible that we don't. We either can't see or we're not privy to. Right. And right. So, th- so that his actions seem irrational if we can't see those. And so they try and make them rational, you know? That's right. That's right. They're looking for something tangible that Paul did that that we should all be mad about. Oh. And it's like, well, the, 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 those things simply might not exist. You have got to, un- you've, you've got to accept that. Right. And, and, you know, they haven't, and and I think the problem is, is that they've blown up some of these issues. The fact that Paul was bossy, and the fact that Paul was slightly upset that Yoko was in the studio, and that he might have had an extra thousand shares, into massive character flaws. The bigger takeaway, not that Paul is untrustworthy or underhanded, is simply that some of these issues that because of this complicated management issue and 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 basically having somebody inappropriate like Klein that was just you know maneuvering and being extremely political made them act in ways 
than they than they wouldn't have if they had had Brian there that was trying to keep them together that saw them being together as a unit and as a friendship and as a relationship as as a very good thing but once he came in it's like they could deal with all these issues they were battling with all these issues until he came in and tipped the scale yeah yeah and made it somebody who was already vulnerable like John who was already extremely emotional and insecure until he was able to stir up things so that John couldn't see straight. That's kind of what tipped the scale so that they just fell apart. It's silly. And I always remember watching the film with, uh, who was it? Not Rodgers and Hammerstein. Those British people that wrote those silly operas years ago. Who are they? Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan. I always remember watching the film with um, Robert Morley and, you know, thinking, we'll never get to that. You know, and we did, which really upset me, but I really never thought we'd be so stupid. This is such an interesting quote because clearly it shows that John, before they broke up, was thinking about their relationship and partnership as something very special and something untouchable. You know, he was he, he thought this could never happen to them and thought that when watching that movie, he didn't understand how that could happen. And later when he's looking back at it, he's like, wow, that did happen to us. This quote is from 1971. It's not that long. I mean, it's actually technically in the middle of their battles. I mean, they're not even really separate by that point. And he's already looking back with regret, thinking, how did this happen to us? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think this reflects how out of control things got between John and Paul and how, you know, they never intended their breakup to happen. And how issues like the battle for Northern songs, which was something that should have united them, was used to divide them. You know, Paul makes the point that somehow we got on this on opposite sides. You know, that that to me is just heightened emotionalism and their pride and hurt. And then people exploiting it. Uh, yeah, Gilbert and Sullivan. I always remember watching the film with um, Robert Morley and, you know, thinking, we'll never get to that. You know, and we did, which really upset me, but I really never thought we'd be so stupid, but we did. But like splitting, like they Like splitting and arguing, you know, and then they come back and one's in a wheelchair 20 years later, you know, all that. I never thought we'd come to that because I didn't think we were that stupid. But we were naive enough to let people come between us, and that's what happened. So we think the shares battle was an incredibly significant event in the breakup because it was yet another event that created major trust issues between John and Paul and opened them up to being exploited by other people, specifically Alan Klein. Paul says that somehow they got into the anti-position. So instead of being the inseparable and indivisible pair that they were, they got put into the opposite sides of the ring. But what were they fighting for? Fundamentally, they were fighting for the best way to manage the Beatles, which again reflects that they were both still committed to the group. But it seems like egos and emotions got in the way, and as things got further from the friendship and the music which had bound them, and the more focused they became on business, the more things started to spiral out of control. With the battle for Northern songs, John and Paul were defending the dream that they had created together at 15, 16 years old. This wasn't just about business, it was a fight to protect the creative entity that they had built from scratch as teenagers and that had taken them to the top of the world. And the loss was surely devastating. 
In the next episode, we explore how Linda takes an increasingly important role in Paul's life, art, and decision-making, and we'll show how John's behavior becomes more erratic and emotional in reaction to this development. Thank you so much for listening. We're so happy when people find us, listen, and reach out. You can help other inquisitive students of the Beatles find our podcast by liking, subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a five-star rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're also on Instagram at Another Kind of Mind, Twitter at ACOM Podcast, email acompodcast at gmail.com, and on Facebook and Tumblr at Another Kind of Mind Pod. Till next time.